This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Some people call it street art. Some people call it tagging. I call it vandalism. We're talking about graffiti, and it is an ongoing problem. I know we haven't heard a whole lot about it in the last little while, but some of the city councilors certainly have because it seems to be happening once again with growing uh, concern in many areas of the city. And uh, the councilors dealt with this earlier this week by expanding a pilot project that they had initiated some time ago. Uh, Terry Whitehead is the counselor for the West Mountain up on Ward 8. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Terry. How are you doing today? Great, Bill. It's great to be with you and your listeners. Well, uh, th- this is an interesting p- topic, and I think a very important topic, too. And I can say this may not be lead story stuff on newscasts an awful lot of the time, but I- I'm going to guess, Terry, that you and a number of your council colleagues are getting a lot of phone calls on this on a pretty consistent basis. Well, yeah, and uh, the other challenge is that a lot of them are coming from the same area. So if you, have, you, you mapped out from our experiences in the last 10 years, what are the uh, areas most likely to get hit? Uh, where, where, where's the repetitive uh, uh, chronic issues? Uh, you can map it up pretty clearly, and uh, in some of those chronic areas, the problem hasn't gone away. Uh, are we safe to assume that a lot of this is in parks? Uh, any, it's basic, yeah, it, but budding public property. So whether you've got a house with a fence backing onto a park or whether you have a house with a fence uh, uh, adjacent to uh, a walkway, uh, those are more, more than likely the places to be hit. So what's going on here? I mean, I know a few years ago, council got pretty uh, militant about this and, and asked for police services to get involved in this. I mean, and, and I know that you actually even started to a certain extent on a public service campaign. I mean, to reiterate once again, what I think most of us should already know is that what we're talking about here is a crime, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, when, you, when you face uh, somebody's private property, and it's not just private property, clearly uh, we have issues with uh, kind of post boxes. Uh, we have uh, issues with uh, uh, with abutments on highways and and uh, and certainly uh, commercial property. So uh, I want to make it clear that graffiti isn't just isolated on private properties. Yeah, I mean there are some areas of the town, quite frankly, where I I don't know if you can see Canada Post box that hasn't got some kind of graffiti on it. So this is this has become an ongoing problem. So uh, you started this pilot project. Maybe before we talk about what you guys are doing now, let's t- take a couple of steps back, Terry, and talk about this pilot project and and your impressions on the, how effective it has been. Well, uh, it's my understanding that uh, they implemented the uh, the pilot uh, program. Uh, I think two parks uh, in at least one in Ward Six in Tom Jackson's area. He uh, he moved to, uh, to to have because he was having a very chronic problem there. Uh, so they, they, they put a monitoring system. They put CTD cam, uh, cameras in there. They had to ensure that they adhered to the Privacy Act, that it wasn't uh, overlapping with people's backyards, but certainly uh, was put up and, and, and advertised uh, that they were there uh, to pr- more like uh, to be a, a deterrent to the chronic uh, issues of uh, graffiti that was taking place in that location. Uh, my understanding, uh, talking to Councillor Jackson, is it's worked remarkably. So, what happens now? Well, uh, my understanding is there's uh, an additional uh, uh, two million dollars put into uh, this campaign that came from a land sale of a parking lot in Lower City, uh, and uh, the council supported. So, it's going to provide us additional resources. Uh, so, there's two approaches you can, you know, the, the one uh, philosophy is uh, you just keep the camera in those particular locations. Another one is uh, you uh, um, make your cameras mobile so that uh, you can get to more uh, chronic areas uh, at a more affordable rate. And I think that discussion needs to yet to take place. 
But I want to remind um, a lot of your listeners that we currently have a bylaw on the books that basically say that if your property is defaced by graffiti, you have a responsibility, you as a private homeowner have a responsibility, or even a commercial, uh, to, uh, to um, dress it. Uh, fix it within uh, a, a prescribed time frame. Yeah, but you guys, uh, council got a lot of pushback on that law, Terry, because a lot of business owners that I heard from uh, when that law was enacted said, look at you're putting the onus on us. You're, you're penalizing us for something that somebody did to us. Yeah, I, I, we, we certainly did. Uh, the, the, the bylaw was, uh, is still in place, uh, unfortunately, and, it, and, and work orders do go in uh, on a commercial property. And uh, the, so you're re-victimizing the victim. And, and the theory was, that, uh, uh, you know, and this is the academics or, or maybe even through uh, practice, if you clean up, you get, probably get hit up maximum three times and they would give up on that particular property. Well, what we've learned is uh, that is the case uh, in certain circumstances. But in these easy, accessible areas where they can put graffiti, uh, they'll hit it over and over and over and over again. So a homeowner can find themselves uh, dipping into their pocket and, and uh, hiring people or, or themselves uh, repainting their fences uh, you know, half a dozen times. I've had that case in uh, uh, off of Lime Ridge Walkway, for example. Uh, the nice thing about Gordy Park is that the uh, the neighborhood group there uh, got volunteers and went and helped facilitate to offset those burdens on the private homeowners. So there are other actions taking place to try and assist, but this is not sustainable, and we need to uh, use technology uh, to advance uh, our objective to deter this kind of vandalism. You, uh, in, in your location up in the West Mountain, Terry, you're, you're not too far from a couple of city parks, actually. Uh, and I know in the past you've had concerns about graffiti, you've had concerns about some vandalism that's gone on and some uh, defacing and, and, uh, and some destruction of public property right now. So when, when you decide to become part of this project, and from uh, the indications we got from the meeting the other day, uh, it looks like you're going to be dipping into your ward fund to do this. Uh, how do you target where you're going to put these things? Well, I mean, we work in consultation with one police, two uh, with staff. So the the, the, the uh, police have a whole program, uh, and it's policing uh, uh, through the environment. So it's ensuring that uh, you, you've, you've set uh, an environment in such that uh, it's easy and accessible for police to, to view, uh, and, and you create deterrence in those particular locations by doing so. It's, it's, it's uh, through design, safety through design. So we will work with uh, uh, the appropriate uh, departments to ensure that, uh, you know, we adhere to the Privacy Act, uh, that we're not, uh, uh, Big Brother's not watching people's backyards, but really these cameras are focused on areas of concern in respect to the uh, impact of vandalism. So, uh, if, for example, in, in uh, uh, let's say, Gilkson Park, cause I, I have three that get hit. Yeah. Their, their sna- uh, snack shack uh, gets vandalized on a fairly regular basis. Uh, people trying to break in, damage, uh, graffiti on a fairly regular basis. Uh, the homeowners backing onto that particular park, uh, get, uh, defaced, their, their, their property defaced on a fairly regular basis. So, I mean, there's, there's a prime area that I would be focusing on, uh, from the get go, knowing that I can expedite, uh, this particular program that seems to have borne some success. So obviously, you, you've also talked about the idea of making these things mobile, not unlike what the city did years ago with the the red light cameras. Uh, at first, those things were actually changeable, so you could be in one intersection for a couple of weeks and then move it on to another. Do you yep. see that happening with these part these cameras in these park well, areas? I, I, I want to be cost effective. I mean, I want to be conscious of the taxpayer. Uh, I think that uh, if the technology and the quality of uh, uh, a camera work and lighting, uh, the combination. 
uh, works on a te- on these temporary uh, uh, approaches, then certainly uh, uh, I think we can get to a lot more areas and, and make it much more affordable. But if, in fact, it's not practical because of quality and and uh, whatever other issues, then uh, that's something I have to take con- uh, under uh, consideration. But my my promise to the community is. Uh, they, we, we were not, we're not going to sacrifice the quality, uh, uh, and the, and meaning the objective of deterring, uh, this chronic problem of graffiti. Uh, and we're not going to sacrifice between permanent and, and temporary if, in fact, uh, those are issues that we need to consider. All right. I want you to put your other hat on for a couple of seconds here, if I could, Terry, because you're also a member of the Police Services Board, of course. And, and as we said at the outset of this uh, discussion, this is a crime. Uh, and I, I, I just want to know the approach that the board is taking with this, with Hamilton Police Services. Uh, I know that you can't have officers in every park all through the night to see that this is happening and, and, and grab the perpetrators. But, I mean, what, if anything, can, can the cops do in a situation like this to try to alleviate some of this concern? Well, uh, I think right from the onset of uh, this program, you talked about the two types of uh, um, vandalism or graffiti. One is uh, gang-related, uh, so clearly uh, the police have a keen interest uh, in those kind of markings, and they come up and, and photograph, uh, they, they, they build the evidence, they build the, uh, the information so that they uh, uh, obviously can address it through their investigative services. And then, of course, there's the, uh, the general just vandalism and, and graffiti from uh, people that believe they're, they're artists. So uh, I can tell you that we've had success. I mean, uh, let's go back and how, and especially in Ward Eight, one of the biggest uh, uh, graffiti uh, vandals in uh, that we experienced in Ward Eight was a guy called the Pac-Man, and he he draw these sort of Pac-Man uh, uh, characters on fences and wherever he could, private buildings and forth. Well, the police uh, did arrest him. He did go through the courts. Uh, I'm not clear what the outcomes were in the court, but I believe that. Uh, uh, part of the sensing was uh, community service, so basically that same individual would have to go out and uh, and uh, uh, do community service in respect to graffiti. So, in other words, clean it up. Correct. So, but th- th- which leads to the next question then. Once you install these cameras, and I don't know if this happened with the the, the pilot project that was in Councillor Jackson's ward. Can police use the evidence on these cameras to go after these people? Absolutely. It's no different than uh, any other CTTV camera we have downtown. If it uh, observes uh, an illegal activity at the time and, uh, and it draws enough evidence in regards to, uh, uh, you know, be able to, to, to identify uh, the, uh, the, the culprit, uh, then certainly they can be charged. Do you get the sense then from the investigations that police have done on some of these issues that these are repeat offenders? In some cases, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, for your listeners' uh, uh, information, at one time, I, I think they're probably being a little more careful now, uh, they would go on to a particular website and uh, brag about their latest tag. And uh, so it wasn't hard to gar- garner some intelligence from uh, what was being posted. How much is this going to cost? Uh, we haven't got a, a pricing on it now. Uh, I know that was $2 million put into the account, and that's why I said I want to the most effect from a sale of a, of a property, so it's not levy impacted. So we're looking at uh, how best to spend that money to reach out to many of these chronic areas as practical, and that gets us back to the whole conversation about whether they should be uh, uh, permanent uh, setups or whether they should be mobile units. So you mentioned there's a pot of money, though, and this is from the land sale that uh, the city did downtown? A parking lot, correct. Yeah, we're talking about the one on King William Street, correct? 
I, I can't I can't confirm that, but uh, uh, that's as much as I know at this point. All right. Well, yeah, and, and we're getting it. I guess land sales, and that's confidential information until it's yeah. finalized. I get that. Okay. So, but we will find that the, the, the location in in the fullness of time, though. Yeah. All right. And now, is that money available to all the wards, or is just because uh, I've I've heard you and Councillor Jackson, Councillor Marula talking about this? But I got to think this is a problem much more widespread than just those areas. Yeah, and I do believe, uh, and you know, if you take a look at the lens I look through at council, uh, I I don't want to have have and have nots. We need to ensure that there's an equitable uh, distribution of dollars when it comes to these chronic problems. So I think that uh, how we prioritize those issues and 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 whether or not two million would. Uh, uh, be enough to cover off those uh, those chronic issues is yet to be determined, uh, and I think that's a discussion that uh, will be moving forward, and what the best way to approach it. But you know, I'm not waiting, and I think that was the point I made. Now that I know that uh, you had success with the pilot program, and uh, and I know that uh, that uh, at some point I can have uh, my area rating account um, reimbursed, I want to move much more quickly on the chronic areas within my ward by going out and. And, uh, and and purchasing the cameras. Part of the pilot project, uh, Terry, was uh, was what they called an information uh, aspect to this, uh, which I assume that a lot of people know that the cameras are there. But I mean, is signage part of this as well to let uh, the the possible perpetrators know that they are they are being watched and uh, that they could be prosecuted? Absolutely. I mean, I mean listen, I'm I'm not a big fan of signs necessarily. Okay, signage because yeah. uh, I mean we post speed limit signs too, and, and half the people on the roads ignore those. But the fact that, that it's there may actually serve as somewhat of a deterrent to some people, anyway. Well, I mean, you, you'll see uh, a lot of private homeowners that have cameras that uh, whether they have them or not, but post signs that, uh, that you know, this this yard is under surveillance cameras and surveillance and so forth. And uh, and I believe that there's some merit in, in the deterrence. I think the other thing is. We may have an obligation on the Privacy Act uh, when we set up these cameras in new locations uh, to ensure that the general public knows those cameras exist. Do you still get pushback on that? I know that when CTTV cameras were first instituted downtown, there were a series of public meetings actually right across the city about that, and, and there were some groups that had privacy concerns. Are, are they still adamant about that, or is, is uh, that ship sailed? I think uh, through that discussion and dialogue and, and, and legal and privacy uh, concerns, uh, that uh, that was laid to bed. Doesn't mean the concerns aren't there, but uh, one of the things that took place even back then was um, again signage uh, to you know make sure that when those CCTV cameras went in, people understood that these cameras existed. So uh, I guess the practice today is going to be consistent with what we've learned through those experiences. And look, if you go to London, England, for example, they got cameras on every corner. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. You go to commercial entities in uh, in Hamilton, many are in, in the downtown or other, they have uh, uh, cameras as well. And you know, you often hear when a crime is uh, committed, uh, that police will put out an ask if anyone had a camera that caught anything on their video, that please contact the police so they can look at it for evidence purposes. So it's becoming more and more a tool in fighting crime. Absolutely, and we've seen that happen with a number of uh, trials that have been ongoing. Ward A. Councillor Terry Whitehead. Terry, thanks for the update on this. We'll stay with you and uh, as this uh, progresses. Appreciate the time today. Thank you, Bill. Really appreciate it. Terry Whitehead, of course, from Ward 8 up in the West Mountain. By the way, if you're looking at cause and effect here and say, is this really worth the money? Uh, the estimate that I saw on this is Hamilton. The city of Hamilton spends over $2 million a year cleaning up graffiti on their properties. That's just on public property, and that's their price tag. As uh, Councillor Whitehead said, if it's a public, private property, obviously, that cost is not included. But you and I, if you are affected by this sort of thing, you're stuck with the cost. So if they can stop some of these clowns from doing this sort of thing, all the better for all of us, really. 
You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, voting continues today with the uh, Ontario uh, sec- or, uh, Community College teachers. The, the faculty, of course, have been on strike for, well, this is their fifth week now, and it certainly had an impact. Uh, yesterday we talked with union representatives about what was going on. Uh, we're told that we're going to get the results of this uh, strike vote uh, later on today. But, uh, you know, there's, there's not a great deal of anticipation about this because we've already been told that the union membership and leadership have been told that they, they should turn this thing down, and in all likelihood they will turn that down, uh, which leads to the obvious question, what's going to happen next? Is the government going to step in? Are they going to force back-to-work legislation uh, in this whole situation? Uh, students are having a, a, a rough time with this. I mean, it's costing them an awful lot of money. They pay a lot of money for tuition to go attend, attend community college, some of them, of course, in co-op programs, and it's just not happening. And uh, there's a concern not just with that. There's also a concern about the compressed schedule once they do get back to work, the impact that's going to have on students, the impact it's going to have on potential job opportunities after that, and and placements into the job force, too. If you're not at school, you're not getting your diploma, chances of getting a job are pretty slim. Well, some students have decided to do something about this. There is now a proposed class action lawsuit about uh, this ongoing college strike that has been launched on behalf of students affected by the labor dispute. The uh, legal action comes as uh, striking faculty who've been off the job for about a month now began to vote in this contract offer. Uh, Some 12,000 Ontario College professors, instructors, counselors, and librarians have not been to work since October the 15th. So what about this class action lawsuit? Well, the implications of this could be significant. Uh, the uh, law firm is called Attorney Lawyers. They fired this uh, class action lawsuit against the province's 24 colleges today, saying that 14 students so far have come forward to potentially stand as representative plaintiffs. The uh, action alleges that the colleges themselves have breached their contract with students by failing to provide vocational training and full-term classes. Is this a good idea? Is this going to motivate one side or the other to do something about this? Joining us to talk about this is Samantha Hoover, who's the president of the Mohawk College Student Association. She joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us her perspective. Sam, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again. Thank you, Bill, for calling me back. I, I enjoy being on your show. How, uh, how are you hanging in here, first of all, as this uh, proceeds into week five now? I mean, uh, you just said it. It's been five weeks. That's, that's how we're doing. Um, the longest strike in the province uh, history, so that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's not ideal. And, uh, you know, I can say, on behalf of the MSA, we're disappointed that there's still no deal. Are you uh, one of the 14 students that's involved in the class action lawsuit? I am not, no. I'm not a student anymore, actually. Did you? Are you aware that this was going to happen? Yeah. So I wasn't aware until it came out yesterday. And I, I can assure you that the MSA is aware of this, although we haven't heard much from our Mohawk students about this lawsuit, but we will continue to pay attention to see if the lawsuit does gain more traction. Well, given the scenario here, Sam, and, and what's gone on, uh, and I know that you've been you've been active in this. I mean, you did attend the demonstration at Queen's Park, but you did tell us uh, before you went there that day that you were going there as as uh, as a as a neutral. You weren't taking one side or the other on this. But that was a while ago now, and things haven't really progressed. Have you changed your attitude about uh, w- uh, taking a side on this? So the MSA, I can say we are still neutral. However, we are more firmly advocating day after day for a better contingency plan for all students because this is quite frankly, an unfair situation for everybody. So we're obviously uh, not happy that there's no deal, but we are. I am still advocating for the best plans coming out of this for all students. Uh, for the students' benefit, obviously, that's your number one priority, correct? Yes. 
Absolutely. Well, the class action lawsuit, I know you probably haven't seen the whole thing yet, but I mean, the story that we've seen on this indicates that uh, what the students are asking for here, that's the 14 students that are involved in this class action lawsuit anyway, uh, are asking for reimbursement, essentially. Uh, they uh, said for students who choose not to continue with the programs, they should get a free refund, or a total refund, rather, equivalent to the value of uh, lost instruction for those who do want to continue. So no matter what your, your financial loss might be, these students suggest that students should be paid back the money that they've lost as a result of this five-week strike. Now, I know you're not part of the lawsuit, Sam, but mm-hmm. given given your, your, your propensity for wanting to get the best deal for students right now, uh, tell me what you think of the lawsuit. I mean, I think it's a big move, and I think uh, in the five weeks it's been the longest strike. I don't think that, uh, you know... I don't know. It's, it's a tough situation, Bill. It's, it's, this is unlike any situation in strike history in, in uh, Ontario, and it's it's very interesting, I'll say, to see this happen. But uh, do you think this is going to serve as a catalyst? Is it going to motivate somebody to move towards a solution right now, which is the ultimate goal here? I, I hope I hope so. I think uh, at, at this point, whatever it takes to get students back in the classroom is, is ideal, and, and hopefully this does gain more traction, yes. So with this lawsuit right now, or this class action lawsuit right now, essentially the thrust of this is, is not to take one side or the other. Uh, it's, it's essentially taking the student side, as I see this anyway. They're simply saying, look, at, we're the ones that seem to be getting lost here. We're the ones that are losing money and losing potential employment opportunities and certainly educational opportunities. Do you feel that uh, when this strike gets settled that, uh, that compensation should be due to students who have been adversely affected? So I'm not sure if you uh, got the Minister Matthews uh, news release on Friday, but there is going. She is requiring all colleges um, establish a dedicated fund with all the savings from the strike, which will go directly to students who have uh, received financial hardship during this strike. Now I think that so tuition refunds is again provincially directed, but I think this is a good start. Um, and I'm not sure how that works yet, but this is a good first move for. Um, students, I think. Well, and I understand the program, and we talked about that yesterday with union representatives, mm-hmm. and that's essentially money that the government's not spending in wages and, and, and benefits for the strikers right now, and I get that, but I got to mm-hmm. figure, I, I, I do some quick math in my head here, Sam, if there mm-hmm. are over 500,000 students across the province that are being affected by this, I don't know that there's enough money in the fund that uh, that Minister Matthews is talking about right now. They may have to dip into some other to, uh, financial uh, pots to try to get them the money that may be due to some of these students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it really goes college by college from what I understand. This is a very new development. There's no other details, but uh, Minister Matthews does ensure that she'll work with student leaders and colleges from each college to uh, establish what that actually means. I, I know that uh, the students' associations are trying to stay neutral on this uh, and, and not shift to one side or the other. And we understand that exactly what they want to do here is to try to get the students back into the uh, educational environment. I get that. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, uh, you've got to be frustrated by this. I know you're frustrated by this. I know students that have contacted me have been very, very frustrated by this. And they want to see some action on this. Now, uh, there are a couple of scenarios here. I mean, you know as well as I do, of course, that the faculty are voting. And this is the second day of voting today. And as I mentioned at the, the beginning of this uh, conversation, they, they expect, and the expectation is we're going to get the results of that sometime this afternoon. If the answer is yes and they go back to work, then all things are, are, are okay. We're told that it will be a few days before they get the schools open again, probably next week. And mm-hmm. we can move on, and then obviously they'll have to enact uh, whatever uh, you know programs they need to do to try to accelerate the uh, the curriculum. So that's that's one scenario. 
The other yeah. is they say no. And if they say no, uh, where they're not even bargaining right now, uh, there's a, a great abyss out there at that point, Sam, to suggest, well, where do you do, what, does the province get involved in here? Uh, do students associations become more proactive like this and, and enlist the province's help to say, look, you've got to step in here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, it's very interesting to see this play out. Um, so from my understanding, I think the vote is going till tomorrow morning from what I've heard. So that I, I, I've heard that the results are coming tomorrow night. So we have an extra day there. Um, but in any case, um, the unknown is really, you know, scary for students. Like we don't know what, what the vote's going to be. If it's yes, then the strike is over, everybody's back most likely next week, but if that vote is no, what does that mean? It's, it's very unknown, and it's, it's unseen. We need to, um, I think we're preparing either way. We're, we have a contingency plan for the MSA, but we're not really sure what, where it's going to go. There are one key issue, because we've told that now, again, we're getting mixed messages here, and we, we heard that yesterday when we talked with union representatives about this. Uh, you know, the colleges are saying, well, here's what our final offer is, and there are, there are you know, wage increases, et cetera, and I think an actual increase in the complement of full-time employment, that sort of thing. Uh, the yeah. union says that's not really true. Uh, so I, I haven't seen the contract, so I don't know what the proposal is one way or another. But there, there seems to be one sticking point here uh, that, that comes in, and that's uh, that the, they feel that they should have, uh, the, 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 meaning, of course, the faculty, that they should have more input into the, the grading system and curriculum themselves. Uh, yeah. Which which seems to be a point that there's a huge amount of disagreement on right now between the two sides. Do the students associations uh, have an opinion on that? Um, in terms of the contract uh, details, no. But if it's if that's the only issue that, um, and from what I understand, that is the only issue that's keeping them from a settlement. It is kind of sad because um, it seems like they could be close to a settlement, but they're still, no, well, they're not talking right now. They're just waiting on this vote, which is kind of unfortunate for everybody. Well, I, I know, because invariably contracts uh, come down to money. We get that. Whether it's in the wages and benefits or the cost of doing this or the cost of doing that, there's always a dollar figure attached to it. But it sounds right now as if there's this huge philosophical rift between the two sides, and, and the students are getting caught in the middle on this. I mean, you're, you're, the, you're the, the collateral damage in this philosophical debate. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Students really, um, they didn't bargain for this, uh, pardon the pun, when they when they purchased their tuition when they paid for it a few months ago they thought yeah my semester's going to be fine we have over 700 students graduating this semester and, and the future is very unknown for them they could have job offers waiting and they don't know what they're expecting right now and it's really frustrating for all students and they really just want to be back in the classroom i know that's the messaging that we we chatted about a couple of weeks ago but it's you know that's still the messaging it's just more the students are more annoyed and frustrated right now well, let's talk about that reality because, I mean, some of the details about how this is impacting on students uh, may well be lost on some members of the public. And you just alluded to the fact that there are 700 students that are graduating at the end of this semester. The, the first problem with that, of course, Sam, is you don't know when the semester is going to end now, do you, because of what's happening? Exactly, yeah. It's, it could, it'll change depending on what day the strike ends. If it ends uh, tomorrow with the vote, then it'll be different from the plan that they'll enact in Mohawk versus what it would be if the strike ended like in two weeks. It'll be very different day by day. And it is really frustrating, but I can say that, you know, the MSA is still continuing to collect concerns and student feedback in order for me to bring that to the college and say, this is what you must continue to plan for because there's no, um, it's unknown right now, but students need to be accommodated either way. It's it's very frustrating for them. Well, and if that is delayed, meaning their graduation from the the program at the end of this semester, 
uh, you have to wonder about what those potential employers are going to be doing, too. I mean, are they going to hold jobs for those students to wait for the semester to end? Are they going to fill them with somebody else? I mean, that could be an opportunity loss for some of these graduates. Yeah, and that's also very concerning. You know, uh, we were supposed to have our October convocation, the fall convocation. That, that got The ceremony got moved to March, but um, the, the credentials were still valid, which is nice. But it sucks because the ceremony part is the fun part, right? So, you know, I, I, I fear what happens for students either graduating this semester or next semester. Um, and just the all unknown right now. It's, it's very uncertain. What about the uh, the potential? And we've heard about the Mohawk plan uh, from from some of the administrators there, from uh, Mr. Armstrong and others at the college, Sam, about what they may do here. And basically, what they want to do is accelerate the program and kind of compact it, and uh, which is going to put an awful lot of pressure on on students uh, to try to, mm-hmm. to to try to get through that program, however long it may take. Uh, yeah. A compressed program like that, it could be later program, could be later classes. Uh, obviously, many more weeks involved in that. I have heard from a number of students that are expressing some some serious concerns about how this is going to impact their academic standing, that uh, that it's going to be more difficult right now to get assignments done in a timely fashion, uh, maybe less time for, uh, for one-on-one with some of the profs in situations like that. What are you hearing? Yeah, I'm hearing a lot of the same things. It is very frustrating, and, and you know, I'm still being optimistic. I'm still positive, optimistic that, you know, the students won't lose their semester, but we are mid-November. It is five weeks in, and this is the fourth full week of classes that will be lost on students, and that's very frustrating. The quality of education and student mental well-being are two of the MSA's top priorities in ensuring that students get what they need after the strike, and it's how, how are we supposed to gauge that when we don't know when the strike's going to end, right? Do you have dialogue with the other uh, student associations to, to, to get some read on to how their pers- uh, what their perspective is and how they're dealing with this? Yeah, we chat often. I, you know, I, I do keep in touch with the uh, seven other presidents uh, and their student associations, the ones that we wrote the letter uh, to the government with. Um, I do keep in touch with them a lot, and <clears throat> I went to the rally with them, and you know, it's very interesting to see in different areas of the GTHA, like how it's affecting students and what scenarios are different and the same. Um, but it, it's nice to know that, you know, I'm not alone in this and that it's the entire province. Um, and it's good to just chat with the other presidents and student associations about what's going on. Were you, were you surprised that there was a class action lawsuit? A little bit, yeah. It's, it's, at this point, um, we didn't expect even the membership vote to come out as soon as it did. Um, and, and with um, our last interview, Bill, um, right after that happened, uh, the College Employer Council announced that they're back at the table. That only lasted for five days, and I was shocked about that a little bit because, you know, three weeks in, they're back at the table. I was hopeful that there would be a deal out of that. I think a lot of people were hopeful at that. Yeah. I'd like to think our conversation had a little bit to do with that, but, I mean, you know, maybe that's just wishful thinking because uh, you're right. It was within hours after you and I talked that uh, Minister Matthews tried to get everybody back. But that was, that was, those talks broke off again. And now we've yeah. got the vote. And and the indication I'm getting from both sides right now, over the last couple of hours anyway, is mm. that there's no plans right now to go back to the table if, in fact, there's a negative vote here. So uh, you're really in a bit of, a, 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 I guess, a an academic black hole here. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing, too. Like, we were, up until um, the last couple of weeks where the talks broke down, everything was somewhat predictable in terms of, like, process and how things go. Um, we really didn't prepare for that blackout and then for the talks to just break down right after uh, and then this vote to come out. So it's really hard to predict how this um, vote in the aftermath on either side is going to go. And it's, it's interesting to uh, 
be a part of. Well, we're down to November the 15th right now. Is there a date in mind uh, with the Students Association, Sam, where you think, oh, my gosh, this is a crisis now? I think, you know what, then there's no, like, specific timeline. It's college by college. But I think, like, five weeks in, I think that's kind of alarming. It's, like I said, the, you know, the uh, longest strike in the province history. Like, that's, that itself is, is disheartening. Um, but we keep hopeful, and we um, we still encourage students to share their concerns with us and just to continuing to urge both sides to do whatever it takes to get students back in the classroom already. So we may not actually be at crisis point yet, but we can certainly see it down the road, not too far from down the road either. Yeah, it, it very well could be right around the corner, but, you know, with the student frustration on campus and off campus, um, you know, we feel that, and it's, it's very uh, it's frustrating for everybody. Well, Sam, we'll see what the results of the vote are. We've heard conflicting stories as to when it's going to come forward, but I mean, given the, some of the comments we've heard from the union representatives on this, I, I'm not overly optimistic about this, but we've, <laughs> we've been surprised before, haven't we? Yes, we have. Thanks so much for this. We'll stay in touch. Thank you so much. You'll have a great day. You too. Samantha Hoover, of course, who's the president of the Mohawk Student Association. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday, Finance Minister Charles Souza uh, rose in the Ontario legislature and announced an economic update, uh, which uh, turned out to be a, a goodie package, really, for small businesses here in the province of Ontario. And this all has to do with the concerns, and I think some legitimate concerns, uh, from small businesses about the impact of uh, increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, you may remember that phase one of that, to increase the minimum wage to $14 an hour, actually takes place January 1st, which is not that far away. So the minister has added some, uh, they call incentives and tax breaks to try to help small businesses cope with uh, what may be an increased cost here. Is it enough? Is it going to win over the hearts and minds of small business? Let me bring Keenan Loomis into the uh, conversation. He's already part of this conversation, of course, because the Chamber of Commerce has been very vocal about the uh, the impact and the concerns on small business. Keenan, of course, is the president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. As he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Keenan. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. Good morning. Good. Listen, before we get into the finance uh, minister's statement yesterday, uh, kudos to you and the chamber, and of course, uh, the, your other partners is at the library and the corporate sponsors on the uh, uh, outstanding awards ceremony last night, the Gallery of Distinction up at Michelangelo's. What a great night that was. It was a great night, and uh, always uh, one of my favorite nights of the year, actually, um, because it's such a celebration of people who have made such significant contributions to our community. And uh, you put in, put them all together. There were, uh, what, six people last night uh, that were honored. Um, and those contributions uh, by all six of them together are incredibly impactful for this community. And uh, a really great crowd last night, too. Yeah, Ed Cummings, uh, Gwen Metcalf, Frank Razzo, uh, Tom and Sasha Wise, uh, Vitek Venza, and Maureen Warren Silve. Uh, and, and, of course, they each had a little opportunity to speak. And some of the most heartwarming, inspirational, and emotional speeches. I mean, it was just a fabulous night all the way around. Yeah, and I'm really privileged uh, by virtue of my, my position to be on the selection committee for the Gallery of Distinction. And so I get a chance to read through all the nominations uh, every June, uh, I guess, we, we get together. And uh, there are so, so many people that need to be uh, recognized for their contributions. And, and eventually we'll get around to everybody, but uh, <laughs> always tough to, to pick the, the top uh, few 
that should be honored this year. And uh, it's nice to when uh, the the gallery, when the date of the gallery comes around, and everybody else is able to uh, to celebrate and and fet those uh, people as well. It's a really really great evening. Well, your uh, your your committee, your selection committee, outdid themselves this year because all the all the people, the recipients last night, it was one of those things like, oh yeah, sh- I mean, sure, we know about that work. Yeah, that was fabulous. So, uh, all things considered, now you got to get back to work and start worrying about 2018, and uh, yeah. you, not until springtime. So, so we got a few months to do that. <laughs> okay, let's let's talk about uh, what happened here. Now, you've been on the program before, uh, and yeah. and have expressed on behalf of the chamber and on behalf of small business uh, some concerns. And as I mentioned in my preamble, I think legitimate concerns about the minimum wage, uh, not that you're against it, but you're f- the, the the rapid track in which the government's moving right now and the impact it might have on small business. So out comes the finance minister yesterday and, and essentially says to small business, I got your back here. There are some uh, incentive programs, some tax reductions uh, that he says are going to go into effect on January 1st, just as the, the minimum wage is going up right now. Does this allay the concerns that you and, and small business have raised? Well, in one word, no. Um, it doesn't, but uh, I will start by saying that um, you know we we thank the uh, finance minister for his update. We thank the the government for listening to us to the OCC uh, network. They've heard it uh, in almost every community across the province about uh, you know the challenges this is going to present not just to small businesses but to not for profits and the institutions within our, within our communities as well. And you know yesterday's announcements. Um, was evidence of the fact that they, you know, they knew they obviously had to do something to uh, um, offset the impacts that uh, the minimum wage hike, the rapid minimum wage hike, is going to have on small businesses. But um, it really didn't go far enough. Uh, what we found is that, um, you know, so the overall uh, impact of the the rapid increase in minimum wage is going to be twenty three billion dollars across the province. And obviously, some of those wages are going to return into the economy, so there's going to be a stimulative impact of around $11 billion. But that leaves a $12 billion gap that uh, either businesses are going to have to um, absorb or consumers, obviously. And really, when you add up all of these um, these goodies, as you call them, uh, it, it's a small impact, four to $500 million a year. So it doesn't go nearly far enough to close the gap for uh, small businesses. But small businesses love to hear about tax decreases, and we're always talking about being competitive, of course, with, with other markets right now. Uh, a 1% drop in, in, in that tax, in that business tax, uh, I, I guess they figure is, is going to be something that you're going to embrace, but uh, clearly it's, it's not going to cover the numbers. Well, the, the issue is that, um, you know, the, the raise in, in the minimum wage is going to have an impact of about $6,000 per employee. So an employee that's getting minimum wage, um, there will be $6,000 in extra cost per employee uh, per year. And the maximum amount of, of money that um, uh, small businesses are going to get as a result of this decrease from 45 to 3.5%, so that 1% drop is only on the first $500,000 of income. So the maximum amount um, that this is going to return to small businesses is $5,000. So it doesn't even come, uh, it, it, it doesn't even cover the full costs uh, associated with one employee. So if you have two, three more uh, employees that are going to be making minimum wage, this does not come even close to offsetting the costs associated with the increased uh, uh, increased wages. 
I know some of the work that you guys have done in research, and by that I mean all the Chambers of Commerce, because you're working collaboratively on this, and, and the Canadian Association of Independent Business, uh, suggesting that the demographic that could be hardest hit right now is that uh, 15 to 29 age group. Uh, precarious employment is a phrase that comes to mind once again. Now, the government's countered that uh, by saying they're going to spend $124 million over three years to help companies with fewer than 100 employees hire in that age group, that 15 to 29 age group. But I, I, unless I've missed something, Keaton, I don't see how they've allotted for how those companies are supposed to deal with the people that are already employed that are going to get that increase. Yeah, it doesn't have to do with anybody who's currently employed, although, you know, there's all kinds of other wage supports for, for youth and, and all that. There's actually quite a, uh, a robust labyrinth of, uh, of regulatory me- measures that are really difficult uh, to navigate, especially for small businesses. Yeah, but those have, have been so in play for time. some time, and, 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 and they've been factored into your, your calculations already, though. Yeah, and so the the issue is here. Um, you know, it, yes, the, again, uh, they are addressing um, a concern that we've had, and, and youth employment will be uh, one of the the, the biggest uh, impacted uh, sectors, um, age groups, demographics. But um, but again, it's it's really only a, a little bit to cover um, what will be a much greater impact. It's a thousand dollars upon hiring uh, through a youth employment program. Um, and then a thousand dollars if um, that uh, employee makes it to the six month mark. So basically two thousand dollars, which is essentially a two dollar um, uh, wage um, uh, um, impact. And um, you know it it again doesn't go far enough, but it's something. and and again, they they do recognize that uh, they need to do something. They have listened to the uh, Ontario Chamber of Commerce Network, but I just think that they've what they've done is created even more regulation, even more red tape uh, to navigate. And I think again, small businesses uh, are not um, availing themselves to these programs already, so it's going to be uh, difficult for them to do so uh, with just you know new, uh, measures. There's another element to this that uh, that you and I have talked about in the past, and, and again, I don't think the minister addressed this, is when we're talking about an increase in minimum wage and, and the fallout that that's going to have and, and the impact it may have on, on, on payrolls in general, uh, they don't take into consideration here, of course, the number of people that work for the government that are going to be impacted by this, and that's a significant number. Uh, so when he's talking about incentives to small businesses and tax breaks for small businesses, uh, it does not account for the money that we, the taxpayers, are going to have to pay for those who are working for the government who are going to be the beneficiaries of this, but at what cost and, and who's going to foot the bill? You're right, and I don't even think that they've figured out what the impact is going to be to the broader public sector, meaning hospitals, colleges, universities. All of those institutions are going to be impacted. All of them are funded by taxpayer dollars. Um, those institutions, regardless of what sector they're in, are all being asked to do more with less, and now they're being forced to to pay um, for their payrolls to go up, and we don't know where that uh, that extra money is going to come from. I think that you know the the guess is that there will be no extra funding from the province, and so um, you know hospitals are going to have to uh, further squeeze. Uh, their budgets, and so the I don't think that the government has done that uh, that um, that work yet, and they don't know what the impact is going to be to the broader public service. So, um, and as as we said, not for profits are also going to be um, negatively impacted, and, and this uh, the announcements yesterday had uh, nothing for not for profits at all. 
There's another element to this, and I, I want to touch on this, Keenan, because it, I think we need to look at the broader picture here sometime. What Mr. Minister Souza did say yesterday is that the reason he's moving forward on this, these are his words, I'm just paraphrasing it, though, is that it's because the, the Ontario economy is actually outperforming all expectations right now. And he's got numbers to back that up. And the forecasts for 2018 are looking pretty rosy now as well. But that is based, and you know this because you've seen the numbers, to a certain extent on the increased foreign trade that we have, a cross-border trade that we have right now with our U.S. trading partners and the exports that are going out of Ontario into those markets. And that's all well and good, because uh, that's a snapshot right now of, of November the 14th yesterday when he made that statement. But let's let's talk about the bigger reality here. NAFTA negotiations are sagging right now. You've got a U.S. president saying America first that's going to talk about increased tariffs and a number of other initiatives right now. Uh, which could have a tremendously adverse effect on those those predictions for 2018. And if that happens, and if those revenue streams dry up, we're in a bit of a pickle here. Yeah, it's a really difficult uh, economic environment for Ontario uh, in over the next couple of years. There's just so much uncertainty, especially, as you mentioned, with regards to trade um, south. I I. We don't know where we're going to land uh, on NAFTA, if NAFTA is even going to be uh, in force uh, too much longer. So that's uh, obviously um, going to introduce a lot of uncertainty into the, the business community. We've got uh, carbon taxes that are, are set to uh, increase. And, of course, we're always fighting with uh, with really high electricity costs. And, and, again, nothing that was announced yesterday will do anything to help uh, mitigate the impacts to uh, to businesses uh, related to high energy costs. So it, it's really difficult um, for businesses to plan going forward. And, um, you know, the, and again, the, the big issue here is we're not against the raise in, in the minimum wage. And, and I know I've said this before, we as an organization, the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, we're a living wage employer and yep. we pay everybody at least $15 an hour. And I, I think that that's, that's really important. But it, it's the rapidity. It's why are we doing this? Why are we increasing wages 34% in about 15 months? Whereas, you know, and that's going to have a, going to endanger a lot of jobs. Um, you know, there's been some pretty high projections of, you know, up to 150,000 jobs or so. Um, some of the banks have, uh, have projected there will be 70 to, 70 to 90,000 jobs um, impacted, and the government itself uh, projects that there will be 50,000 jobs impacted. And if we stretch that out over five years, instead of doing it in, in 15 months, if we stretch that out in five years, we minimize and lower the, the impact by 74%, um, so that you know, 74% of those jobs will now no longer be at risk if we just stretch it out and allow businesses and, and not-for-profits and institutions to, to give them some time to be able to absorb this impact. Why are we not doing that? And then we don't have to layer upon uh, what is currently a really difficult and, and, and labyrinth um, uh, regulatory environment. We don't have to keep layering uh, all of these other programs on top of it. it. It would just be a lot cleaner, a lot easier. Um, but uh, obviously, we're headed into an election year, so, uh, so a few things make sense. Oh, you, you think uh, that's a factor, that. do you? <laughs> 
<laughs> and of course, the government's response to what you just said there is is that well, we we can't we ha- we have to accelerate this. We can't extend this anymore. We should have done this years ago, and, and they're right. They should have done it years ago. They should have. But yeah. but you but you can't be punitive to small businesses to to and accelerate the program now just because they dropped the ball four or five years ago. Yeah, I know. I I, I don't know how long the uh, the current government has been in place, but it's been a really 14, really long fourteen time. years. Well, there you go. <laughs> So they've had opportunities yeah. in the past. They didn't do it. And, and it's, yeah, okay, credit for coming late to the party and you know, say we're going to do this. That's a great idea. But you, you, can't, you can't put the pressure on small business as a result now because of basically the political timetable, not the business timetable. Yeah, it, like I said, it's really difficult to project forward. Um, and uh, we're, we're told that there will be some measures in the 2018 budget, and we look forward to some more details and perhaps some more offsets. Um, I know that uh, you know there there are a lot of other uh, aspects of Bill 148 that have not been addressed. Bill, um, some of them are you know have to do with uh, scheduling and and having to if you cancel a shift uh, less than 48 hours out, you got to pay um, you got to pay your staff at least three hours of work. Well, that's really difficult for the restaurant industry, especially you know um, if it's dependent uh, upon seasonal weather and, and all that. So we're hopeful that there will be a lot of other um, measures that will help uh, mitigate the impact of, of Bill 148. Um, this is what we're what we're being told is this is just the first round. Um, so we're all ears and we're still at the table. And, and like I said, there have been a number of elements within the government that have been very receptive to um, the, uh, the the business community coming forward with some uh, solutions. And uh, we'll see how it all uh, how it all uh, comes out in the end. Absolutely. Keenan, thanks so much for the time. Good talking with you today. Thank you, Bill. Keenan Loomis, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.